I'd like to begin this morning by reading a text that will set the agenda for our morning session, and that is from the book of Revelation. We're looking at the Jesus way, uh, but we can skip ahead to the book of Revelation where we see uh, our word kingdom used in a way that illustrates the emphasis we want to bring our attention to this morning. In Revelation 1.6, I'll start at the end in the middle of verse 5, but this is, we're focusing on something said in verse 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and now notice this, has made us, we believers, to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Notice that the Apostle John sees Christians, the believers, the churches of Asia Minor, seven of them, who will be discussed in chapters 2 and 3 to be the kingdom. And this is a very important emphasis in our five themes about the kingdom that we've been looking at this week. And I want to rehearse those five themes. They are that for there to be a kingdom, there must be a king, and this king secondly must rule. This king rules both by governing and redeeming. First by redeeming and then calling people under his lordship and governorship. So there must be a king who rules over a people, and that's where we are today. And this, in a sense, forms the critical moment Uh, for this week, uh, logically and rhetorically, theologically, as we try to put together what Jesus means by the kingdom. And this sense of people is often neglected in conversations and discussions and definitions of the kingdom. But remember, I suggested the thumbnail definition that a kingdom is a people ruled by a king. Fourth, there must be a law or a will expressed by the king to reveal to his people how they are to live. And finally, there must be a place in which they live. So today we want to look at this theme that the kingdom is a people. And I want to look at uh, some of the dominant ideas that are found in the Bible and especially in the New Testament as we look at this theme. But I want you to know my heart. I love the church. I love the church as the body of Christ. I love the church as the place where God is doing his work in this world. And I really believe this. I do not believe that God's mission in the world is in the United States or Northern Ireland or England, or the Republic of Ireland. If I've picked on everybody now, Scotland from my grandpa, who was a wee little man. God's work in this world for Christians, in the biblical sense, is in the church. And I love the church. I acknowledge the limitations of the church. And sometimes I celebrate the limitations of the church. One man wrote a book that the church is messy. It sure is. The church 
is a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints. That's why we're there. Not because we're saints, although at times in the history of Christianity, Puritans, some kinds of Anabaptists, Mennonites at times, they have demanded people to be saints, to be a part of the church, and if you didn't live up to all their expectations, you didn't deserve to be a part of the fellowship. Well, my church has a communion table at the front for a reason, because we need it. And before we get there, we confess our sins. That's the sort of people who are welcomed into the church. But there's a contemporary problem that I am grieved about uh, when it comes to the church, and particularly as people talk about the church and the kingdom. I would call this one of the most serious problems the church is facing today. This stand is a little tilted for me, a little too tight. I have old eyes, so I can't always see all these things, so I need that thing to sit up a bit more. But at any rate, I want to read something um, that I read on the internet, and every time I read it, I get a little bit more irritated by it. So this may be the last time I will be uh, sanctified and read it in public. What grieves me the most about, about what was said is that it was said by a pastor. And this is what he said. Though the church and its activities can fit into the kingdom, you cannot squeeze the kingdom into the church. When we try to fit the kingdom into our church box, you know that word box is not positive, we create church people instead of kingdom people. And there is a huge difference between the two. And you can see already that he likes kingdom and doesn't like church. Church people, he said, have reduced ministry vision and can't see past church-bound categories for ministry, like ushers and greeters and children's workers and inviter of lost friends. But kingdom people have kingdom vision to think and dream and act outside the box, the church. They want to heal the wounds in their neighborhood, workplace, and community. And they work with fatherlessness and addictions and bad marriages. Church people, on the other hand, see the gospel in terms of good news about the afterlife. It's how you can be sure you're going to heaven after you die. But kingdom people... They see the gospel in terms of good news about kingdom life. That's called uh, defining your terms by using the terms. I don't know what it means if it's kingdom people see the good news about the kingdom. I want to know what he means by kingdom. It's about life in God and with God, both now and forever. Church people understand discipleship is primarily about enjoying a closer relationship with God that grows me to spiritual maturity. But kingdom people understand discipleship as the call to lose their life for Christ's sake so they can participate in his family for his mission. And then he concludes in italics, the kingdom is not a means to a bigger church. The church is a means to demonstrating the kingdom. Well, well, 
This pastor needs to go back to seminary. When we make kingdom the opposite of the church, we are countering the body of Christ. Christ came for the church to save people and bring people into the church. How can we talk about the church like this and be pastors of churches? What kind of language is set up in the Bible so that we can counter Jesus' language of the kingdom against his own body, the body of Christ called the church? Yes, of course, the church is messy. The church is messy because you and I are in it. And that's why it's a mess. When you find the perfect church, you will be dead and in the kingdom of God. Until then, we will have to deal with the reality of the church as it really is. And so this pastor counters kingdom and church, and I wonder if this is appropriate. I don't wonder. I am deeply grieved that anyone would castigate the church by talking about the kingdom. And I am reminded of one of my favorite quotes of all times, uh, which I quote uh, in my kingdom book, and I quote everywhere I go, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his brilliant book, Life Together, after he had spent time in the underground seminary in Finkenwalde and Zingst on the northern coast of Germany. He said those, he talked about people who come into churches with their dreams of what a church should be, and then their encounter with what a church really is, and then they become critical of the church as it is. Those who love their dream of a Christian community, can't you hear him saying this in German? With a little inflection and Teutonic vituperations and exaggerations. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest earnest, and sacrificial. And then he completes the thought, the bright day of Christian community dawns whenever the early morning mists of dreamy visions are lifting. We must slay our dream wishes for the church and learn to live with the church as it really is. I often say this, the less we need to expect less of the church, and when we expect less of the church, we get the more that the church really is. Now, I like that statement, but I'm not sure what it means. Let me tell you about my church. We have a pastor named Jay. Now, we're Anglican, so we can call him a priest. Forgive us for that. And we have an associate pastor named Amanda, and because we're Anglican, we call her a curate. We have these fancy terms for everybody that nobody understands. They're both extraordinarily talented musically. 
They're both gifted as preachers and teachers. They're pastors. But our church is filled with other people, and sometimes we have parties, and we sit around, and the parties turn into conversations, and we start with Bonhoeffer, and then the next we're talking about creation and evolution, and then someone's talking about Lord of the Rings, and I go sleepy because I've never gotten past 1.25 volumes. It's all made up. I don't get that. I believe in reality, I guess. I'm a historian. And, and then someone will start talking about Harry Potter. And then I'm really lost because I've not read a word of Harry Potter. But our conversations just flow with one another. And over time, we have developed a reading community and we can refer to one another and we can refer to books and we love one another and we meet and have coffee. And it's not a perfect church. We don't even have a building. We'd like to have a building, but it costs a lot of money to have a building. And we're not that big, about 150 people, and we meet at a seminary. And we're hoping that we will find a building. But we love one another. We're not perfect. We don't have always good sermons, except when I preach. (laughs) And we don't always have good Sunday school classes. But we're there together, and we know one another. And when we leave and go on vacations, we miss one another. And that's why we like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, because we can keep up with one another when we're away from one another. And we like to come to church, and we sit in the third row on the left. And I sit on the outside because my knee's always aching, and so I can stick it out in the aisle and trip people when they come to the table. And Chris sits next to me, and then usually our grandson, Axel, and his sister, Finley, and then my son and his wife, they sit there as well. And our family occupies most of a row. And other families occupy most of rows. And we know one another, and when church is over, We have snacks with one another, and we talk about the cubs and the bears and life and people who have cancer who are struggling, and we pray for them, and we meet with Leslie and Gil and have dinner once a month together, and she now has cancer, and it's awful to go through cancer and chemotherapy and what it does to the body. It just tears the body apart. But this is what church is about. Church is not where you go to hear a sermon Church is a fellowship of people who are struggling in life together, who know forgiveness together, who know love and peace and joy and justice together, and they're seeking to live this out in this world in the best way they can. It's it's not all that fantastic, but it's what the church is. And so I do not think we ought to be criticizing the church because it fails to be perfect. There is no perfect church. But here's the thing I want to say. When I hear people compare kingdom to church, I get really nervous. Because I'm a theologian and an exegete, and I listen to what they're saying, and I have 50 questions before they get through the first sentence. 50 exegetical points that need to be considered. And so today I would like to construct this idea. And this idea is that what Jesus meant by kingdom 
is what Paul meant by church. And I will say it this way. They're not identical, but they are the same. And I'm not sure what that means either, but I think it's pretty good. Two terms can't mean the identical thing, I guess. But I do not see that much distinction and nothing of substance when we compare kingdom in the New Testament to church. But the core of it is this, that the church is a people. The kingdom is a people. And I would like to explore some of these passages in the Bible where we see that the word kingdom means a people. When Jesus said in Mark 1, 14 to 15, the time has come, the kingdom of God has drawn near, repent and believe in the gospel, he did not mean only that you can now be saved. He meant that the expectation for the people of God on the earth of God, living as the people of God in the salvation of God, was now arriving. It is not simply that salvation is available, but the people of God was now going to realize the vision that God had set for them. I'd like you to listen to these verses from the Old Testament. You know, when Jesus said the kingdom of God is drawn near, the only way to make sense of that is if you know what kingdom of God is. And the only way that you know what kingdom of God is, is if your life is soaked in the Old Testament so that you know the expectation in the Jewish world for the kingdom. So we have to look at the meaning of the word kingdom in the Old Testament. There are about 200 references. I won't read them all. Deuteronomy 17, 18 says, when he takes the throne, he's talking about Moses and a king, When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. When he takes the throne of his kingdom over these people, he says then that that king will reign a long time over his kingdom in the land of Israel. That's the people over which he will rule, Deuteronomy 17.20. Isaiah 19.2 uses this term in a very ordinary way. I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian. Brother will fight against brother. Neighbor against neighbor. City against city. Kingdom against kingdom. Now here a kingdom is a people governed by a king, and they're fighting another people governed by a king. Jeremiah 18.7 reads, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed. There, the word kingdom virtually means nation, the most common synonym for the word kingdom in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 27, 8. If, however, any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or bow its neck under his yoke, I will punish that nation with the sword, famine and plague, declares the Lord, until I destroy it by his hand. There again, the word kingdom refers to a people governed by a king. Now two more references, one from 1 Chronicles, the second from 2 Chronicles. Of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne, listen to this expression, to sit on the throne of the kingdom 
of Yahweh over Israel. Solomon the king on the throne of Yahweh over all of Israel. Finally, 2 Chronicles 13.8. The kingdom of Yahweh was in the hands of David's descendants. Now I've labored this point, and I have the capacity to labor things way beyond the point of tolerance, because I'm a professor, and we do these sorts of things. But this is very important for us to understand kingdom. We must be people of Scripture. And the Old Testament is a part of our Scripture. And the word kingdom in the Old Testament always refers to a people governed by a king. It never once means salvation. Never once is the word salvation the synonym for the word kingdom. Now, why am I saying this? Because for many people, in the New Testament, the word kingdom only means the saving reign of God. But this is completely counter to everything said in the Bible. This illustrates our privilege. When we are called the kingdom because we follow Jesus, we are drawn into a story that God begins with Abraham and he continues with Moses and David and Solomon and prophets like Isaiah and the bizarre Ezekiel and Zechariah and Malachi. Those prophets then are a part of our story. And when we're called the kingdom people, we are drawn into this story. Our story is the story of Israel. So to call ourselves kingdom people is to draw us in to the story, and it is our privilege. But there is something profoundly unpredictable about the kingdom with Jesus. Because Jesus seemed to throw the doors open, open the windows, and welcome everybody to the table. And that is why for our text in the, uh, the study guide, we were to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, the Beatitudes of Jesus. And what I want to illustrate here by looking at this passage is the unpredictability of the people of God. Another word used for this is the unlikely. If you start hanging around churches very long, different churches, you're going to discover that there are a lot of odd people in the church. You might be one of them. I'm not odd. I'm very normal. And I need a, a wee hat to cover this wee bald head because it's a wee bit cold today. We need we hit. You need some hit. I'm trying to work, sound Irish, but I haven't a chance. But notice what Jesus says here. Now, I, I, I want to just cushion, uh, uh, cushion this. It is pretty typical to read the Beatitudes and to look at them as a virtue list of things that we should all try to imitate. I don't believe Jesus was doing that at all. In fact, Jesus is, is saying things that shocked his audience. So I'll start in 5.1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now, if you've been to Galilee, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, 
near Capernaum, there are no mountains. So I think at the end of this line, everybody who heard this would have written down hashtag LOL. This is a slope about like this. So for Matthew to call this a mountain is a powerful statement. He's saying, as Moses ascended the mountain, so Jesus ascended the mountain. I don't care if it's a plain or not. We're calling it a mountain because Jesus is going to take Moses and turn him into a new way of looking at things. Moses 2.0, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mountain. An upgrade at a major level. And Jesus is clarifying what the law of Moses is all about. And he sat down. You know, you sit down to teach in the Jewish world. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit uh, is not simply the virtue of humility. It is the It is a sustaining faith by the economically poor and the destitute who have learned to trust in God when people who have lots of money do not trust in God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He's either talking about people who have funerals in the family and are grieving, or people who are grieving over the condition of Israel because of Roman occupation. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is a, this is a first century Mennonite statement. This is a critique of warmongers. It's a critique of the zealot option in the Jewish world, where Jesus says, it's not the zealots who are going to bring in the kingdom of God. It's the people who are waiting upon God to act in this world. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Not the people who have all the money in the world to buy all the meats and fishes and vegetables and to have symposia in their homes every night and eat and drink and be merry. They're not the ones. It's those who ache and long for God's righteousness to do the will of God as Jesus has taught it. Blessed are the merciful, Not those who exact justice, not those who want revenge, not those who uh, are desiring to pick up weapons. No, those who are merciful are the ones who will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. This is a critique of Pharisees who are pure in hands. You know that story in Mark 7 and Matthew 15 where the disciples Uh, report to Jesus that the Pharisees have criticized the disciples because they eat with unwashed hands, which was a Jewish ritual that if you had a handful of water and you poured it on your wrist right here, it would run down into your fingers and then you could cup your hand and turn it back over here and now your hands are clean and you can eat in a ritually clean manner. Jesus said, they're not the ones who are clean The ones who are clean are the ones who are pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers against the zealots and the warmongers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God.
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven for the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. You know how the disciples responded when Jesus started out the Sermon on the Mount with this manifesto of who was in the kingdom and who was not? Their question was, what about me? Why didn't you talk about me? I'm not in that list. Because this is a list of all the wrong people. There's no powerful people here. There's no rich people here. These are ordinary people in Israel. And Jesus looks out in the crowd and he says, it's not who you think is in the kingdom of God. It's who God thinks is in the kingdom of God. And God looks upon people's hearts and he knows the people who are truly after him in their heart and in their obedience. They're the ones who are the people of God. I teach at Northern Seminary, and one of the first classes I had, I had two African Americans from the city of Chicago who turned the class every day into comedy. They were hilarious students, very serious Christians. One's name was Phil, and the other's name was Stanley. Well, Stanley was quiet, great big guy, about 6'4", played football. And Phil was a chatterbox. I hope he's listening. This is going on CD and stuff? Good. I'll tell him to listen. He was always talking in class, and he was making fun of Stanley. But then one day he said to me, he said, Doc, that's what he called me, which is better than what my college students call me. They called me Yo. Yo, Scott. I took yo to be English for doctor. It was just a subtle translation that I made. It was a way of preserving my dignity. He said, you ought to ask Stanley his story. So I said, Stanley, one day, I said, what's your story? Oh, he said, Doc, I don't have time to tell you my story. So the next week, Stanley brought me a book. It was his story. Stanley grew up in Chicago, and he was a wonderful athlete and a wonderful musician. Think the uh, Commodores or something in the 60s, you know, leisure suits, big afros. Think that, that's the kind of musician he was. And when he was a high schooler, he became a very good football player and became a Christian through a, a pastor by the name of Wayne Gordon, who started a fellowship of Christian athletes group on campus. And then Stanley became a Christian. He wasn't very serious about his faith. He got a lot more serious about his band. And they started traveling and fronting some pretty good-sized bands. Stanley started hanging out with people he shouldn't have been hanging out with. And then one day, Stanley was told by one of his friends who had lots of money, he said, I want you to give this bag to this lady outside. And he got out of the car and he gave this bag to a lady and no sooner had that bag touched that lady's hand and he was surrounded by police. He had just done a drug deal and he had no idea that he had been set up. African-American males in the United States legal system don't fare well. Just listen to the news and you'll hear all about it. So Stanley went through trial after trial. He had no money. He had no representation. He had no O.J. Simpson lawyers. 
And at the end, his pastor, Wayne Gordon, pleaded in tears with the judge to release this guy because the other man had admitted that he had set him up. But the policeman who heard the setup refused to give the testimony. So Stanley went to jail. Stanley didn't deserve to go to jail, though he had broken a law. He was a good man. In jail, Stanley read his Bible every day. By the time he got out of jail, he had read the Bible through seven or eight times in the King James Version, which is much harder. No CDs for him. And then Stanley uh, got his life back together. He got his faith back together, and he began to participate in a church in downtown Chicago called Lawndale Community Church. It's a model church in the city of Chicago, pastored by Wayne Gordon. And then when he was done, I said, to, after I'd read the book, I said, Stanley, what are you doing in your church? He said, Doc, he said, I am the pastor of the formerly incarcerated. You need one of those in your church? Probably not. They need one at Wayne Gordon's church. Lots of ex-prisoners in this church who have found faith. And if you go to Lawndale Community Church, I promise you, you will see the Beatitudes in living blackness, in color. Because the church is filled with Beatitudes people. It's not filled with people with PhDs and master's degrees and who earn money on Wall Street and on the market in Chicago. No, these are people who are struggling to make ends meet, but they love Jesus and they follow Jesus and they tell their neighbors about Jesus and they're trying to create a culture of justice in one of Chicago's worst neighborhoods. It's called a food desert. There are no grocery stores because people steal from grocery stores and grocery businesses don't want to deliver into Lawndale. So these people buy in small shops and they can't get good and healthy food. And Wayne Gordon, Pastor Wayne Gordon, is creating an oasis in this city. And Stanley is one of the Beatitude people in this church. Phil's just like him. And Phil's wife is just like him. And I had dozens of students like Maddie Phillips, just like these people. And every day in my class, I was looking at the Beatitudes in living color as I taught these students. Because we are privileged to join the kingdom and there is an unpredictability about who will be in the kingdom. You do not know whom God might choose to work with. It might be the person you think is least likely to deserve God's grace. Well, we're going to run out of time here. But the kingdom is a people. If you compare, I'll just make a couple points, and then I want to finish with one other one. I'll run over about two and a half minutes. Okay, Barry? I don't want to get in the way of Irish coffee. I don't know how to say it the way you do, but you'll get some heat when you do that. If you look at the five themes, king, rule, people, law, and land, or space, and you compare Israel to the church, you will realize that everything said about Israel and the kingdom 
is said about the church in the New Testament. And that's why I would conclude that they may not be identical, but they're the same. There is no kingdom work done outside the church people doing that kingdom work. There is no church work done outside kingdom people. Kingdom people and church people are identical. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, I give to you the keys of the kingdom because I've I've come and you're the foundation of the church. So church and kingdom are drawn very closely together by Jesus and then expounded by Paul. So I'd like to look at the kingdom people's calling in this world. We've looked at the privilege of being connected to the kingdom as God's people, and we've looked at the unpredictability of God's people in the kingdom. And now I'd I'd like to look at the people's kingdom calling. Five points, very simple. The kingdom calling for the people of God is to lead people to Jesus as the Lord and King. Our summons is to draw people to see that Jesus is the King and He's the Lord. That's our calling. The second dimension of our calling is that we promote redemption in Christ that leads to the Lordship of Christ. We promote redemption. We lead people to see that in Jesus Christ they can find the forgiveness of sins, the ending of their guilt, justification before God on the basis of what Christ has done for us through no merit of our own. I'm being very Protestant here. All right, This is the truth of the Bible, is that we don't do anything for this. God has done it for us in Christ that our goal is to lead people to that redemption and then to show them that this Jesus who saves them is the Lord. Third, we understand ourselves in the church as God's dwelling place and center of mission in this world. It may be against your Irish bones to think so highly of yourself, but we're, we're good at this in the United States. No matter what you think, if you are in the church in a local community, you are in the middle of what God is doing in this world. Let us never forget that we are part of the body of Christ and what God's mission in the world today is, is to build the body of Christ and to bring glory to himself. You are a part of that unpredictable as you might be, but privileged to be a part of this kingdom. Fourth, we want to draw people to obey the teachings of Jesus because we are the people of God. The people of God are people who are on mission, and they obey what Jesus has said. And finally, we are called to expand the work of God in Jesus to new places in this world. Gavin has been pressing us to think about evangelism. Indeed, we are called to evangelize and to spread the gospel throughout the world because that is a part of the mission of God to draw all people to himself because he's reconciled all people to himself in the cross. 
So, we are the people of God. The people of God in the Bible has two names, kingdom and church. I leave you with this idea. They may not be identical, but they're the same. If you say the word kingdom and cannot substitute the word church, you're probably not using the word kingdom properly. That may sound radical to you, but I think it's biblical. You and I are a part of the kingdom of God. We are kingdom people. We are church people. There is no difference. We are called to embody the will of Jesus as our Lord. Thank you.